understand the doctrines. I didn't understand everything that it meant. There are two things that I never struggled with after I came to Christ. One was that um, I didn't find God, He found me. (laughs) I was running as hard and as fast as I could in the opposite direction. And the other one was that I really didn't care what my opinion was or what I thought. I just wanted to know what God said uh, because I'd lived 24 years governing my life based on my own opinions. And frankly, I'd made a mess out of it. And so I later learned that that both of those have to do with the with the blessed grace of God, His sovereignty in our lives, and then the sufficiency of Scripture that the Bible is authoritative and it can be it can be trusted. And I am thankful that it's operating in my life and yours, and I'm thankful to sing about it this morning. Well, we're looking at the anatomy of the church and. Um, I don't know that we're even in the middle of it, but we're close. And we're seeing how God, particularly the Lord Jesus Christ, has designed His church so that that it can operate and operate properly. Jesus promised to build His church. That's a promise. And that promise extends far beyond just adding people to it or saving it. Part of that promise is that He gave it a structure to ensure its endurance and its growth. He has given given it gifts as evangelists and elders, and He mediates His rule. Christ is the head of the church. He alone is the authority, but He mediates His rule in the church through those elders as they speak the Word, as they apply the Word. And those that he's given to oversee his flock. Jesus loves his church. He not only gave his life for her, he gives faithful shepherds to pour out their lives for her continued care. And while the Bible uses a number of analogies, like a bride, a building, a temple, and a tree for the church, the most common one is the body. Jesus is the head and the local assembly of believers is the is the body of course there's the body of Christ of everyone that's ever been saved but but some are in heaven some are on other parts of the globe and this is the the body this morning the ones that that when you start applying scripture you don't apply scripture to the believers in Africa you apply the one and others to the individuals sitting right beside you on the on the, on the pew. And the Spirit of God joins the, the head and the body together and holds us into Christ and, and Christ connected to us. The late Adrian Rogers said, you can't love Jesus and not the church because they're so connected, they're one and the same. Saying, I love Jesus, but not the church is like saying you love a severed head. And I might add, try telling your wife, honey, I love your head. It's your body I have a problem with and see what happens, right? You can't take Jesus away from the church. You can't separate them. Now, I understand Jesus is a lot more lovable than his body. We are unlovable people at times. But it is that very fact that that causes us to... to to marvel at what God has chosen to do in bringing a group of people together from all different backgrounds in completely different stages of sanctification 
sinning and falling and confessing and repenting and, and progressing and then doing the same thing all over again and promising to bring all those people together, give them gifts, use them to advance His kingdom, and then bring them to His appointed end, which is heaven. Only God could do that. And the evidence that, that, that He does is, is His grace. When Scripture says Jesus is the head of the church, it means He possesses authority over it. It's like in the physical body. The head is the control center. It's mission control. It contains the brain and determines what the physical bodies do. Christ does the same thing in His church. As His church, we react to divine synapses from the, from the head. We respond to the holy thoughts from the Lord. We reply to heavenly direction. He sets the agenda and gives us the parameters as it relates to what we believe and what we do, and that includes the the structure of the church. There are things that just happen because we're alive in Christ, and He is our head. I mean, just like there are voluntary and involuntary things in the body, we're We're in the church. We possess gifts. We're kept by the power of God and can never be separated from Him. Those just happen because because we're alive in Christ. There are other things, though, that we must deliberately obey, like feeding on His Word and sharing the gospel with others and properly ordering the church, aligning ourselves in the right way. And just like the human body, there are voluntary and involuntary actions so things we do without thinking about them, some things we do without thinking about them, and, and others we must deliberately choose to obey. And in Christ's body, it's the, it's the same way. Our responsibility in the body is to keep in step with the direction from the head. And how do we know what the head is thinking? Well, he has given us a book that is sufficient and authoritative. If you break down the structure that you find in the New Testament, you find three major features of the church's anatomy. There's the visible leaders, sometimes called elders or overseers or pastors or shepherds. There's the exemplary servers, better known as deacons. And then there's the maturing ministers. That's you, the congregation. And Jesus uses all of those parts to govern his his church, or as I've Use the statement to summarize, the church is, the church is pastor or elder led, deacon served and congregationally affirmed. They're all one body with Christ as the head, serving in different ways, functioning in different ways. And last week, we looked at where the visible leaders of the church come from. And today, we're going to see what they look like. Visible leaders. That's the one that we're on. Where they come from last week, today, what they look like, and Lord willing, next week or the week after, what they do. How can you recognize the leaders that Jesus gives to His church? We saw that Jesus gives gifts to His church. How do you recognize who those individuals are? How can you identify a a true shepherd? How can you identify the false ones that serve their, their own interests? We saw Jesus calls them, He He equips them, He prepares them, He gives them to His church. Well, he also identifies their characteristics so his people can see who they are and who they're supposed to to follow. And what a blessing that is to have that type of, of clarity in God, especially in a culture that wants you to believe everything is a moving target and it changes with the prevailing 
tithes. Even in many churches, the description of a pastor or an elder is vague, misunderstood, and oftentimes filled with, uh, filled with, with worldly expectations. And that creates confusion and conflict. R.W. DeHaan of the Radio Bible Class once humorously described the, the fickle mindset that this, this kind of vagueness produces. He said if a pastor is too young for people, he lacks experience. If his hair is too gray, he's too old for the young people. If he has five or six children, he has too many. If he has none, he's setting a bad example. <laughs> If he preaches from notes, he has canned sermons and is dry. If his messages are extemporaneous, he isn't deep enough. If he drives an old car, he shames the congregation. If he buys a new one, he's setting his affections on earthly things. And my favorite, if he received a large salary, he's a mercenary. If he gets a small one, people say it proves he wasn't worth much anyway. <laughs> Well, the good news is the Bible tells us how to recognize a biblical elder when we see one. And I want you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We read from 1 Timothy 3, but we're going to look at Titus chapter 1 this morning. And as we do, we're going to see a portrait unfold that gives us a very clear picture of a biblical elder. Titus chapter 1 and we'll start in verse 5 when we get there, but let me give you the outline ahead of time. The Bible gives seven definitive descriptions descriptions of visible leaders in the church. Seven definitive descriptions of visible leaders in the church. These are not optional accessories, but necessary requirements. And God gives for those that God gives for those who lead his church. He's required to be a man. He must have an unchargeable testimony. He must have time and training. He's required to be faithful at home. He must have a specific character. He must pursue the ability. And he must have a particular commitment. How do you know an elder in the church? A tie? Is it a collar? No, they'll meet these qualifications that we're going to look at in the book of Titus without exception. And it's imperative that they do. Look, if you would, at verse 5 before we even get into the first point. This is our on-ramp into these, these qualifications, this description. Verse 5, Paul writing to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid grain, but hospitable. Loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, teach, and refute those who contradict, refute error. Now, verse 5 is the introduction. 
Paul tells Titus the primary reason that he sent him to Crete was to set the church there in order. The word to set in order means to make straight. Epidiorthao, where we get our word for orthodontist. It's a dental specialist who aligns or straightens crooked teeth. That's the the source, this Greek word that's used here. Paul tells Titus, I put you in Crete, I sent you to Crete, I left you there to properly align the church. And I want you to notice three things that Paul mentions in verse 5. First of all, he says God's church is out of order or misaligned without visible leaders. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. Well, what what remains, Paul, to appoint elders, visible leaders. There weren't visible leaders there. There weren't elders there. And so, Paul tells Titus to set in order the church. The church is out of order, misaligned without these visible leaders. Second thing I want you to notice, Titus is the one to appoint them. Titus, you appoint faithful elders or appoint elders in every city, meaning find faithful men, prepare them, set them before the congregation as the recognized leader. And we went over that last week. Finally, I want you to notice that he's to appoint more than one. He's to appoint elders, plural, in every city as I directed you. Now, city obviously is implying the church. Crete's not a very big place. I've been there. In each church, there's a plurality of leaders that God has appointed and ordained. And notice he says you don't just appoint anyone. He gives specific requirements to identify them. And the first one is found in verse 6. Look, if you would, at verse 6. Here is the first requirement. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the first specific requirement to recognize or to appoint is a person who is an elder must be a man. Now, that didn't take us long for the Bible to get in controversial territory, did it? Not only is a church out of order without elders, but even more tragic, an even more tragic situation is a church who has leaders that are unqualified biblically. I would much rather have a single pastor, a single elder that meets all of these qualifications ruling in the midst of a church. I would much rather have deacons that aren't functioning biblically but are godly, humble men than a plurality of elders that don't meet these qualifications. I mean, polity is a structure, but individuals are the ones that are plugged into that structure and it still always comes back to the heart. It always comes back to their commitment to the Word and their... Humility. But here is the proper order. There are two primary viewpoints on whether an elder must be a man. Of course, the world even finds that question offensive because it's far too sophisticated and it's moved way beyond gender, right? I mean, they're so sophisticated that you can use anyone's bathroom, you can marry anyone that you want and never reproduce. You can even decide from the world's standpoint whether you're male or female or neither, while never changing one ounce of the biology that God gave you from birth. Very sophisticated, these people. The church, though, has held two primary positions. One almost exclusively recent, last hundred years or so, and the other it's held for centuries. 
The first position is called egalitarian or evangelical feminism. It's a specific view of the role of men and women, and it, it applies specifically to elders. That position is men and women are equal, and that requires, that equality requires there's no distinction between them. There's no difference. Differences are God-ordained roles in the home or in the church based on gender. This is egalitarian or evangelical feminism. Therefore, a woman can preach, be a pastor, lead her husband, her family, or anything else she aspires. The fall is the reason that we have authority and submission, or as it's usually called, patriarchy or or male domination. And Jesus came and removed all of that at the cross. This is the the egalitarian position. The key verse that they use, they often quote, is Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't mean this as a slam, although it is. That's about the only one that they quote because there's not much other biblical passage that, that indicates that there's no distinction in genders. This position would say that the grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic or taking Scripture at face value is too simplistic and you need to massage that based on the, the, the culture that you're in and what is written in the Bible is often biased by men like the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was a man and therefore he produced Timothy chapter 2 and so his bias came into came into the scripture that is the rather recent position in the church the other the one the church has held for centuries is called the complementarian position the scriptures teach men and women are completely equal and god sees them that way yet that equality does not consider uh that there's no distinction And it also doesn't mean, because there's a distinction, that one is lesser or greater. God has designed them for Himself, distinct and different, to complement one another, accomplish His purposes, and bring Him glory. There was a change that happened at the fall, but it wasn't the adding of authority or roles. It was the perversion of them. After sin entered into the world and sin in hearts, men have been tempted since the fall to abuse or misuse their leadership, and women have been tempted to rise up against them and refuse to follow. God has given both men and women the ability through Christ to humbly complement one another, to go back to what was intended in the garden. And in His design... God has ordained that men bear His image as leaders, and because of this, He's reserved an elder to a man. Too many biblical texts to note that position, and it has been the position of the church for centuries. Now, there if these were just two simple philosophies or theories that you could debate, and you could decide which one sounded best to you, and then pick one, then that would be one thing. But there is a problem, and the problem is this thing called Scripture. It's a book of, it's not a book of suggestions to apply to the culture. It's an authoritative instruction to God's people. 
And if your position is based on Scripture, the conclusion couldn't be clearer. In fact, to draw any other conclusion rather than a complementarian position, you have to disregard more Scripture than can be counted. Let me illustrate this for you this morning. The verse that's typically used about men and women having no distinction in Christ, removing distinction even roles, including the leaders of the church, comes from Galatians. The context is clearly talking about salvation. Look, if you would, at verse, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Notice there's a contrast between the law and the promise of God. Paul says, may it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But Scripture has shut up every one under sin. Notice it says every one. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, Paul is talking about how God brings everyone into the promise of salvation the same way. He's talking about the law coming before, before Christ arrives. It was a schoolmaster. Therefore, the law has come, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. Law and and faith. It was our schoolmaster. Its purpose was to shut everyone up. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, men, women, everybody under guilt. And just like the law declares everyone guilty, everyone gets access to the promise the same way. Faith in Jesus Christ given by believing. Notice the time reference that's underlined at the bottom. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor, for we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation and your position in Christ as sons of God. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed himself with Christ. And here's the verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. It's no longer ethnic Israel or believing Israel or, or being a Gentile. It has nothing to do with your economy. It has nothing to do with your gender. You are all one in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? And if you, you belong to Christ, and if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. It just simply means we all come by faith and we're all heirs of the promise to Christ and we're all sons of God. There's no distinction on salvation. There's no distinction on our position. Jews don't have a higher position before God because they're Jews than Gentiles do. They both come by faith alone, grace alone. Somebody who has more money or some, than somebody who doesn't is equal in salvation. And the same thing for for men and women. This passage has absolutely nothing to do with authority or roles, which are clearly thought, taught throughout the New Testament. In fact, Colossians chapter 3, the parallel passage to this passage in Galatians, teaches the different functions of men and women, as does Romans, as does Ephesians, as does 1 Corinthians, as does 1 Timothy, 
as does Second Timothy, as does Titus, as does First Peter, as does Jesus Christ Himself. In fact, Jesus on marriage, First Timothy on women teaching in the church in 1 Corinthians 11 even refer back to the pre-fall design as authority and evidence for biblical roles. The Bible clearly teaches men are distinct from women, and it clearly teaches an elder must be a man. And let me show you how that is consistent throughout all of the Bible. It does that in its portrayal of an elder, in its prohibition of who cannot be one, and in its practice in in its passages, or in its pages, practiced throughout all of the pages of the Bible. In every place the Bible speaks of the requirement of an elder, he is always described as a man. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the place that we, that Clay read. Some of you are sitting there saying, this is so plain, this is so evident. It's a no-brainer. I wish that was the case in our prevailing culture. And therefore, we explain it very explicitly from the Word of God. In every place, the Bible speaks of, a, of the requirement of an elder. He is always a man. Look, if you would, at 1 Timothy 3. One, if any man desires the office, it is a fine work he desires. Look, if you would, at verse 2. He is, when he gets qualifications, he's to be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, very specifically. Masculine, talking about a man. Look at verse 4. One who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Look at verse 5. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the, the church of God? Look at verses 6 and 7. talks about he and he. And then if you go back to the passage that we were at this morning, the, our primary passage, Titus chapter 1, it says, If a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having faithful children. Nowhere is there any place where anyone other than a man could meet the description given for the office of the elder in the Bible. Philippians 1.1 gives us the first reference to the office. First Timothy, Second Timothy and Titus give us the requirements. And as I said, they're not suggestions. They're, they're commanded necessities. Not only is this exclusively taught in the Scripture's portrayal, the description that it gives of an elder, but it's also taught in the prohibition that Scripture explicitly gives. Look, if you would, one chapter back at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's the prohibition. So you have the portrayal of an elder, the description all man, all male, and now you have a prohibition about who cannot be an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look, if you would, at verse 11. I think we, we touched on some of these passages not too long ago. 
A woman must quietly receive instruction, that means not teach, with entire submissiveness, meaning not rule. Verse 12 explains what Paul means by that. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, does that mean that your mother can't teach you anything? No. Does that mean that she has no authority over you? Does that mean that that there are women in the church that that can't impact men in the church or can't teach Sunday school or otherwise? Absolutely not. It means the official teaching position, the official elder in the duly constituted body. When the church is called together, we do not violate the roles and create confusion. 1 Timothy 2.11 and 2.12. A woman is not to be in the official teaching position within the church, pastor or elder or other position that exercises authority over men. You have to do textual gymnastics that make a Chinese extortionist look like I don't know what to get around that passage, and even then you can't. The common argument is that this means that they they can be in authority, but they can't be abusive in their authority, but it clearly doesn't say that. The other argument has already told you these are the words of Paul who was a male chauvinist or the culture wouldn't accept a woman pastor at that point in time or a woman elder. So Paul, knowing that, gives these specific masculine requirements and now that the culture is okay, then, then we can be okay. And you understand, the hopefully, the danger in that. Then culture becomes the interpretive rule for Scripture rather than Scripture itself. And so if you can change the meaning of Scripture based on the culture, then should we also do that with marriage and sexuality? Oh, wait a minute. That's exactly what we are doing, right? You see, once you give up the Bible alone as the authority and that it has grammar and context and rules to interpret, then you can make it say whatever you want whether that's Jesus wants you to be rich or whether love is all that matters regardless of of gender. The Bible is not a divine Ouija board where you get mystical about it and the Holy Spirit pops into your head what that passage means. And the Bible is not something that is on the, is on the same platform as church tradition and both of them have a voice, as the Catholic Church says, And the Bible is not something that is molded to culture where you take general principles when God has given explicit commands or prohibitions. It is our authority because it's God's authority and it doesn't change. I was sitting down with a lady one time who taught an adult Sunday school class with with men in it and we talked about this passage in particular in and it was a long process. It was probably about a year. And in the end, we got close to the end. And, and she just she didn't want to she didn't want to step aside. She didn't want to stop. She didn't want to stop teaching. And she finally said, "There was this like watershed moment. We were sitting in the basement of the church in a in an empty Sunday school class with like a a table, uh, you know, like a not a card table, but a you know those white tables between us." I was sitting on one side of the other. We both had open Bibles, and we were just respectfully looking at the text. It's 
It's not my authority or yours. What does the Bible say? What does God say? That's all that matters. And we get we get to this point where she finally says, we're in Second Timothy, or I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter two. These these two verses, and she finally says, I I see that's what it says, but that's not what I believe. Can you give me another reason? And and, and I said, well, I mean that's all I got. I mean that's that's the nuclear option. Listen, if you're claiming to be a Christian and you want more than God's voice alone, I've got nothing for you. I, I really don't. I, I'm not saying that. I do not have the. I don't have the charisma. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the wisdom. I, I can't adjudicate the culture. I can't untangle all the philosophical. I have nothing but the Word of God, <laughs> and yet the Word of God. This is exactly what God promises to save, will save you and transform you and be a faithful guide in your, in your life. I have no authority but the Bible, and frankly, neither do you. Whatever authority you would potentially buy into is going to crumble and fall down around your ears. It just may take a couple decades to do so. So why does God restrict eldership to men? Well, first, because he's God and he chooses to, and that authority should be enough for any Christian. But Paul goes on to explain that very question, the answer to that very question in verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. It doesn't say why God created Adam first and then Eve. It just says, God, for it was Adam who who was first created and then Eve. That's the answer. Notice it's pre-fall. God chose to create Adam first and then Eve. And God chose to restrict eldership to, to men. God designed an order in creation and He prohibits His creation from violating it in leading His church. And the Bible's consistent throughout. So you have the portrayal. They're all men. You have the you have the prohibition. Who can't be an elder? And then finally you have scriptures practice. The Bible is consistent all the way through. Throughout the Old and New Testament, God has upheld the pattern that He rooted in creation in practice. He surely doesn't contradict that in his church, and you can see that in the in the garden. Adam was, or sorry, Eve was, Eve was for Adam. Eve was from Adam, and Adam named Eve. You want to turn back to Genesis? You can, or you can look on the screen. Genesis chapter two, verse eighteen. You can see how this is practiced throughout all of Scripture, and you begin in the garden. All of this, as you note, is is prior to the fall. Eve was for Adam. Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, I don't want you to get wrapped up in the spokes of all the different interpretations about what is a helper and what does that mean. I just want you to notice that Eve was created for Adam. Here's the practice. There's an order and there's a design. Second, 
Notice Eve was from Adam. The Lord fashioned, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And notice that Adam is the one that declares Eve's name. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of of man. Adam. Eve was for Adam. Eve was from Adam. Eve named Adam. Adam was also the first one held accountable for the fall. Look at Genesis 3.9. Then the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? Adam was cursed for his sin, and God specifically says it was not functioning according to God's order. Then Adam said, then he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you. Notice that. Her voice, my voice. You followed her command, you rejected my command. You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground. Because of you. And Adam even renames the woman, that's all she's called up until verse 20, Eve, to recognize the promise that God made in the curse. That seed would come from the woman to save them from the the curse. Now, the man called his wife Eve. Why? because she was the mother of all the living. That's the echo of the promise. God says that He'll undo the curse, and He'll do that through the woman. And so Adam acknowledges that and recognizes that. The Lord then made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and He closed them. You see it in the garden. You also see it in Israel. God did not appoint any female king. Athaliah, the wife of Jehoram in 2 Kings 8, was a usurper, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. God also did not appoint any female prophets with an ongoing ministry in the Old Testament. You say, aha, what about Miriam and Deborah? There are five prophetesses described in the Old Testament, only five. Deborah, Judges 4, Huldah in 2 Kings 2, Miriam... You know her well from Moses. Isaiah's wife in Isaiah 8, verse 3, she's unnamed, just Isaiah's wife. And then Noadiah, who's a false prophetess in Nehemiah 6. Now, Isaiah's wife, they say, may mean a prophetess, may mean the wife of a prophet. Like, that's what the Hebrew means. She's the wife of a prophet. She's the wife of Isaiah. But just for argument's sake, let's say she has a prophetic gift like Deborah did, a legitimate prophetic gift. Deborah had a prophetic gift. That means you have four women in the entire Old Testament. Miriam, Huldah, and Deborah only had one recorded prophecy. Isaiah's wife had none. And, of course, you can't count Noah died because she's a false prophetess and stood against God's man, Nehemiah, so you surely can't include her. God used those women, but none of them, none of their prophetic ministries, they never exercised their gifts like, say, Elisha or Elijah who had an ongoing prophetic ministry, or or Amos, or Jeremiah, or Isaiah, and you could go on and on and on. It doesn't mean that they didn't have a prophetic gift. It means it was specific and it was unique, but it doesn't mean 
that they're then the example for a prophecy. In fact, Deborah, as a judge, she was a judge. She was a ruler in Israel. That happened because the men of Israel failed to lead. So she's hardly a pattern or a rule when she was raised up to shame the men. No kings, no prophets. God didn't appoint a female priest in the Old Testament. There are no female high priests, no female Levitical order, no kings, no prophets, no priests. You can also see it in, in Christ's ministry. This is consistency all through the Bible as God practiced this, this gender uh, difference, distinction that He's rooted in creation. Jesus lifted women, He healed women, He taught them, He exalted them. We even saw in the book of Mark where women were the first to witness the resurrection they're painted extremely favorable at the crucifixion where the men are not. They're, they, they went AWOL. They're, they're watching from a distance. They're in fear. All the male disciples had led while the women are there. But all twelve disciples that Jesus called and commissioned were men. Even when the disciples replaced Judas, one of the twelve, as the Bible calls them, two men were selected. Both of the men and the Lord's lot fell on Matthias. Now here is a perfect opportunity for God to correct patriarchal men that got it wrong, right? And put a female in there. Let's at least have one. Let's break the glass ceiling of the disciples. And yet the Lord's lot fell on Matthias. Listen to what they prayed. This is Acts one twenty four. When they're seeking God's wisdom of who to make as one of the twelve disciples and replace Judas. They prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Who did God choose? That's the point. And the lot's how they figured that out. You can see it in Christ's ministry. You can also see it in the church, can't you? There are no women apostles. There are no women pastor teachers recorded in the New Testament. There are no women writers of Scripture. Priscilla clearly helped her husband instruct Apollos, but she was not an official teacher. She did not have a pulpit. Junia, which is always appealed to in Romans 16:7, is the closest text can re- that can remotely be grasped to claim a female leader in the New Testament, and it's full of, of uncertainties. Here's the passage. Greet Andrianicus and Junia, or Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who were in Christ before me. And the argument is that the Greek can, can render it Junia or Junius, either a male or female. Junia, a female name, most of the time, even though there were some men. Yes, this was, you know, what was Johnny Cash's song? He named his son Sue. So there were Junias. There were people that were named Judea, but most of them were female. Or it can be Junius, Junius. Whoever it is, male or female, it says they were outstanding among the apostles. And that can mean outstanding among the apostles, as if they're among the apostles, one of the apostles. 
Or it can mean they're outstanding among the apostles. They're esteemed by the apostles. The apostles esteem these, these two individuals. One clearly a man and one questionable. Point being, if you only have one verse in the entire Bible to build the doctrine of female apostleship on, with unclear or even contradictory possibilities to your position, is probably not a very firm ground, is it? Especially when this one verse has to explain away why there, there's what it says in the garden, why there are no uh, prophets or, or kings or, or priests, why there's no... Why that verse has to explain away Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 which are abundantly clear. So you don't take something that's clear and override it by something that's unclear. You can also see it in the, the family, finally. All through the Old and New Testament, God has ordered distinctions in the home. Men lovingly lead the family and bear that responsibility. And the commands are for the wives to voluntarily arrange themselves as a help. Genesis 2 and 3, Deuteronomy 6, the countless other Old Testament, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter. God does not ordain men to lead in the family and then place them under women eldership in the church. How confusing. So, does God just not like women? Does he think that they're inferior? Does he think that they're inferior leaders? They can't lead as good as men. They don't have the, they don't have the same skills. And as Paul says, may it never be. The logic itself is flawed. If you think that way, it reveals that you're playing on the wrong field before you even start. Can I ask you a question? Who trains all these men? Who raises them up to begin with? It's women. The hand that rocks the cradle. The most formative years of a person's life, men are shaped by women. Do you think that there might be a connection for why Satan is downplaying on a regular basis being a mother or being in the home? You also, to believe that, that women are inferior, inferior leaders, that God doesn't like them, you also must believe and conclude by this rationale that the person who leads is greater than the one who doesn't. And being in authority is greater than being in submission. And that is, that's worldly thinking. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples? Now, don't miss this. To think that that means inferiority or superiority being a leader or being a follower, that you're, you're saying one is, one is inferior and one is superior. A leader is superior and, in, and a follower is inferior. You are already worldly in your thinking, according to Jesus Christ in this passage. What did Jesus say to the disciples? You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. Worldly thinking, leaders are superior, followers are inferior. 
Look at what he says in verse 26. It is not this way among you. What's the contrast? The Gentiles, the world, within God's people. But whoever wishes to become great among you, you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And look at verse 28. How he models this and what he points to as his basis. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He says, we're not like the Gentiles. We don't do leadership like that. We don't see leadership like that. You're not great if you're a leader. You're great if you serve. It's just the opposite. Jesus, who is God submitted to authority to make him greater, or lesser, I should say, submitted to the government, paid taxes, even a wicked one. He wasn't inferior. He submitted to the Father, and yet he is not one ounce lesser than the Father. And when God calls church members to submit to leaders that he gives them, or husbands, or wives to husbands, he's not implying that they are lesser in any way, or that the only one who is worthy is the leader. The only one who's worthy is God Himself and all authority is delegated. The, the role of significance is, is not leadership. God says both leaders, followers, shepherds, and sheep are equal in value. And when you find yourself in a following role, you shouldn't get upset. You should thank God. It's God's kingdom. And it's a blessing in God's kingdom. It's a blessing to be under authority, not in it. Did you ever think about that? Leaders bear a heavy burden and they give her a greater account in judgment. Dr. Zimmick tells our expositor students, I can promise you, when you stand before the beam of seat of Christ, you will not wish for one more church member to give an account for. You won't wish for a big mega church then. You'll wish for a really little small church because you're going to give an account for every single one of those individuals. And I can promise you, when you stand before the beam of seat of Christ, you will not wish for one more ounce of authority as a husband. You'll not wish for one more ounce of authority as a leader in the church or wherever else it is. You will be thanking God for the biblical authority that was exercised over you that made you more like the Son and less like the world. Being under elders is not a punishment. It's a privilege. May God grant more to us. Let's pray.